3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's two past seven on the 14th of March. Welcome, Sherry. Welcome, Grace. Hi, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've got a pretty... um, cool show today, don't we, Em? Yeah, we do. So the first thing this morning, we're going to be playing um, a talk by Manal Yunus. Um, so this is actually a TEDx talk she did a couple of years back called mm-hmm. How Can People of Colour Best Discover Themselves? Because we're so fortunate that later in the show at 8 o'clock, we're going to be chatting with her. But we thought the first things we would treat you to this really great talk that she did. Um, and we also might play some of her poetry as well, because she's a really amazing um, spoken word and performance poet living on Ghana country. We'll be chatting with her at 8 o'clock. Cool. And then we'll have um, we'll be chatting with um, Debbie Brennan from Push, which is a new organisation sort of trying to get um, a better anti-fa or anti-fascist contin- um, alliance. Um, and so she'll be talking a bit about um, their contingent at the No to Racism and No to the Right rally on Saturday. And then at quarter to eight, we're going to be joined in the studio by guests, by curator Andy Butler and artist James Nguyen to discuss the upcoming, oh no, the exhibition that's actually open at the moment, These Monuments Don't Know Us at Bandura Homestead, which explores the politics of belonging in Australia from First Nations and culturally and linguistically diverse perspectives. It's a really awesome show, so it'll be really great to chat with them. At eight, we're going to be chatting with Manal Yunus, like I said, about her incredible poetry, her upcoming performance at Brunswick Music Festival this weekend, and also her contribution in in the edited collection, which is about to be released soon, Growing Up African in Australia. And last thing this morning, at about quarter past eight, we'll be talking with Emma Dorge on the lack of coverage in mainstream media of the over 70 hours of action that was protesting the Adani coal mine. Yeah, I didn't hear anything about that, actually. No, it really didn't register even almost as a blip in the mainstream media, but it was pretty phenomenal. Like, it was almost six continuous days um, that trains were stopped. It was, I think, only five to six activists, but a really, you know, massive impact Mm -hmm. um, from, you know, peaceful direct action. We're going to be chatting with Manal in about half an hour, but soon we'll be chatting with uh, Debbie Brennan from PUSH. Help FreeCR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save their culture and save their dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming to visit us and doing stuff like this, you know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah, because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago and, and I was a young one. 
whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day and they called me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise it, like, pulled himself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. It's hip-hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into. 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontier, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hits is Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR, 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 9419 We sail for human rights, Indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Okay, so now we've got Debbie Brennan from Push joining us um, right now. Um, and Push is a new sort of collective of um, anti, anti-fascist organisations. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning. Um, I suppose, firstly, could you just tell us a bit about PUSH? Mm, yes. Uh, PUSH, its full name is uh, PUSH Organizing and Building for a United Front Against Fascism. So, as you just said, we are um, various organizations and individual activists who are working toward building what we call a united front, and that's where... Um, organizations and individuals may be politically um, diverse, but we we unite around common points of agreement. And so PUSH is about the common point of agreement is fighting and defeating the fascist threat. Uh, so could you just um, give us a bit of... Um, so who are some of the organizations that are, that are part of your... Okay. Um, well, I, I represent radical women, for example. Um, there is also um, the Indigenous Social Justice Association. We have um, an uh, anarchist communist group, the Melbourne Anarchist Communist Group, uh, Freedom Socialist Party, um, and and others. So it's. Uh, a combination of um, unionist groups as well. So, the, and the, the really important part is that um, a united front to be effective and strong has got to really represent all of the targets of um, fascism and the far right, and it's got to be democratic. And I suppose um, you, you just started talking about fa- fa- fascism there. So how do you see fascism growing, I suppose, around the world and by extension Australia? Well, um, it's it's growing through um, a global capitalist economy that's absolutely floundering. It's uh, just just um, completely, it's dying. And so um, working class and oppressed people are hurting badly, I think, um, all the listeners know um, too well the, the many ways that we are uh, in losing our services, our jobs, etc. And so what's happening around the world is that the far right and um, fascist groups that are emerging are playing upon the insecurity of people, the fears of people, and um, they're blaming not the economy for our problems, but they're blaming, you know, migrants, refugees, indigenous peoples, women, etc. So what's been happening globally, um, and this is really the worrying part, is that um, fascist ideas are actually infiltrating mainstream politics. 
So you've got um, in Europe, for example, you've got uh, fascists who are actually entering Parliament, such as in Germany, in Poland, and so on. You've got groups, um, you know, mainstream political groups, parliamentary groups that are mouthing off the ideas. And so if we look at Australia alone, we find that the coalition government has normalized Islamophobia, um, racism against African communities, First Nations people, um, trans people, etc. We even are hearing um, Mark Latham, who's now thick with One Nation, talking about DNA testing to prove aboriginality. It's just in, in the law and order campaigns that have been run. That is what's happening not only here, but, but around the world. I suppose to, to combat that, how do you see sort of like anti-fascist um, organising in Australia? And how, does that, and, and how would that compare globally? Hmm. Well, uh, in Australia, um, since early 2015, when um, the far right started, you know, trying to organise itself into something coherent, they called itself um, Reclaim Australia. Um, organizations and individuals immediately got together and um, have been organizing against this and the fascist groups that have, have emerged ever since. Um, and we've done this consistently. And what's been um, effective is that um, fascist groups here have remained fragmented, very demoralized, and um, we've kept them at bay. And this is what's happening um, globally. And uh, I'll just use, say, Germany as an example, where um, over there there's been a resurgence of, of, of fascist groups. Um, there has been the Alternative for Germany, which is a fascist party that has gained that's gained um, electoral seats, seats in Parliament. Um, fascists last August in Chemnitz um, had organized a huge rally, but in um, countering that uh, in Berlin, at least a quarter of a million came out into the streets to oppose fascism. And that's just one example of examples around the world. So we're seeing demonstrations, anti-fascist demonstrations, being orbit organized globally, which I suppose brings us to something that's very special about this coming Saturday, March 16th. Um, what's happening globally um, around March 16th is um, anti-far-right, anti-racist, anti-fascist demonstrations that are being organized here in Melbourne, but also across Europe, um, in the United States, I believe in Brazil as well, um, to, to counter this. And the reason for March 16th is that that's the UN International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And it's quite exciting to see this, to have coordinated efforts, and that's what this is about. It's, it's um, anti-fascist, anti-far-right, anti-racist organizations that are actually coordinating our efforts to, to, to stop this threat. I guess um, maybe is that a new kind of thing that's happening in terms of being proactive instead of responsive? Because I guess in Melbourne especially there used to be, I can remember some really big demos with far-right activists and, you know, anti-fascists in there, and then this one seems to be that, that it's not in counter for something. And is that a new tactic? Um, you know, I think it's something that's been growing for um, a, a quite a few years. If we even look at, at Melbourne, it may not be explicitly um, um, put as, as anti-fascist, but there is resistance against the very same thing I'm, I'm talking about. Um, we only need to be looking at um, January 26th, Invasion Day, over the last few years. They, they're enormous. They're absolutely enormous, and I think that the last one um, is said to be up to about 100,000 in Melbourne. Um, International Women's Day um, has been 
growing into just massive, massive marches. And it's the, it's organizing against the very same things. And in fact, in this year's January 26th and International Women's Day, the, the demands are addressing, you know, the far right and the fascist threat. Um, so, and, and the union movement, again, in Melbourne alone, we've had two absolutely massive union marches, um, up to about 120,000. And it's, it's around the attacks on unions and working people. But when we think about who are we working people, we are the very targets of the fascists. So in a way, you can't, you can't, um, divide these or compartmentalize them. And, um, so it's, it's something that resistance is something that has been building either explicitly as anti-fascist actions or as, um, as actions against these same attacks. We only need to look at the Me Too movement and the massive women's marches in the United States, as well as the anti-fascist um, organizing and so on. Um, and, you know, so, so you sort of talked about it a bit before, um, how sort of like racism is used um, as, a, as a tool uh, for, for fascists or, or by fascists. Um, I suppose, do you, want, do you want to talk a bit more about that and how that's sort of embedded in the, in the structures of, of the state and, and, mm. yes. and how it's well, all connected and, and how we can sort of like use that to, as one element to fight fascism or something? Yes. Um, well, again, I guess to to look at just Australia um, and what I'd be saying about Australia would be similar around the world. But in Australia, um, well, we are a um, a settler state. You know, the the lands of the First Nations having been stolen, and then of course the White Australia policy, which um, maybe had may have been officially um, dropped, but uh, in reality, it's alive and well. And so you connect that to the um, the government scapegoating uh, through xenophobia um, with the anti-refugee policies, which are um, absolutely barbaric. Um, that has been a part of it as well. Um, more recently, we've seen the law and order um, moves by state and federal governments, which are targeting not only First Nations people, but people from um, African uh, communities, and so on it goes. And, of course, anti-Semitism is resurging. So um, that racism is something that is so, so embedded in the structures of um, of the state and society, the racial profiling of police is well known. So the the fascists and the far right it, it can tap into it easily. It's there for them to tap into. So we have, you know, hysteria over Australia Day, for example, where we have um, fascist groups. Um, raiding local councils who had the the audacity to um, to drop Australia Day as their official day. Um, these are happening all the time. Whenever there's a rally um, in solidarity with First Nations people or or refugees, um, for example, we always have to be ready to be countering fascists who try to raid those rallies. So racism is something, as you said, um, is a tool that um, that fascists uh, use to to try to divide us. They're trying to break down the solidarity of of the majority of us, working class people, people um, who are oppressed in in various ways. And um, the thing is, it's not working very well um, for the reasons I've given before about the massive mobilizations. Um, and I think what we ought to do, too, is connect that racism to things like misogyny, misogyny from which we have the homophobia, the transphobia as well, 
because um, uh, women of all in all circumstances have been targeted by the far right, by governments, and then also by the far right and fascists. For example, women who um, defy, you know, the traditional role in the kitchen, um, mothers on welfare, and then, of course, trans people, um, people who are, you know, they, they've opposed same-sex marriage and so on. All of these are so interconnected because when you look at women, that is another form of population control. And this is what the racism is all about, what the ableism, what the misogyny is all about. Ultimately, we've got to understand what fascism is. Fascism is the breaking of the working class. It's the crushing of us, our trade unions, our ability to organize, and we saw what that means 80 years ago. So we need to really see what fascism actually is and make sure that we nip it in the bud before it can escalate to anything like that. Yeah, and um, I, I guess I suppose um, we, we we need to wrap it up. But um, mm. could you just tell us uh, a bit more information about um, Saturday, this Saturday, the the yeah. um, say no to racism and no to the right march? Um, and also, um, if people want, if listeners want to get involved, how can they? Okay, um, first of all, the, the rally, um, which is uh, stand together against racism in the far right. That's at 2 o'clock this Saturday at the State Library. Now, PUSH is organizing um, a contingent to be part of that rally, to be um, really putting that anti-fascist perspective. So anybody who wants to be part of PUSH's contingent, we are meeting at quarter to two um, at the structure called the Sunken Library, which is just you know on Swanston Street. Um, in front of the state library. So, you know, march with us. Um, anybody who wants to get involved with PUSH um, can, uh, first of all, go to our Facebook page, um, which is antifascist.push, um, or can contact us via email, which is antifascist.push at gmail.com. And um, PUSH is about, you know, broadening this united front and all organizations and individuals who are being targeted by the far right and fascist groups really should be a part of this growing united front. Great. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Debbie, and good luck for Saturday. Thank you so much. We appreciate, like, you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know? Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and they call me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor, you'll know way back when. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It is 10 to 8 on the 14th of March. And right now we're so lucky to be joined in the studio by Andy Butler and James Newen to discuss the amazing exhibition, These Monuments Don't Know Us. Welcome both. 
Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Andy, I was wondering if we could start with you. Could you give us a bit of an overview of this show that you've created? Uh, so I just opened to the public last uh, weekend, and the opening event is this Saturday, the 16th, between 2 and 4, at Bandura Homestead Art Centre. It's called Those Monuments Don't Know Us. Um, so Bandura Homestead is a really interesting building. So it's a colonial mansion built in 1899. Um, and I guess when I was approached to curate an exhibition there, I was... Uh, sort of at a point in my career where I was thinking a lot about um, racialized power structures and their influence on how they shape cultural production. And I guess approaching a colonial mansion like Mandora Homestead, I was really thinking about um, a sort of history of um, a race and power in Australia. Uh, and there was this real feeling that, you know, the sort of time that Bandura Homestead was built around, like the time of the White Australia policy was really coming back around to us. Uh, and so I guess I just pulled together a lot of artists who I really respect, like James, uh, who think really critically about the contemporary time that we're in, in terms of uh, Australian culture and how we think about uh, race uh, and power, um, and place it in this building that has so much gross and weird history that feels like colonial wealth. Um, but is this strangely beautiful building. Like, it's such, yeah, really weird place. But mm. beautiful, yeah. And that makes me think a bit about how, you know, this building sort of makes really evident or really obvious the, like, you know, colonial nature of this architecture, mm. of, like, the institution, of the art world. But that sort of, that, that whiteness, the colonialism, is actually embedded in the walls of all these galleries. You know, yeah. it's just sort of, it's like bringing it to the forefront in a different way or something, maybe. Yeah, I guess, like, this other thing that I was thinking about, because obviously identity is really hot right now uh, in a lot of places, but I feel like a lot of the times when the works of these, of particular artists are put into, like, a white cube context, a lot of the time the, like, the political nature of where the work comes from is really, like, cut away and kind of, like, ignored, and it's sort of just, like... No, obviously, like, the background and the experience and the perspective that um, a lot of the artists bring to their work is really important and central and beautiful. But a lot of the time, it's just a, like a celebration of, like, their culture as opposed to a really, like, deep critical engagement with, like, I don't know, this sort of structures of power around their work. Um, yeah, and I feel like in a lot of predominantly white spaces, it's just, yeah, you sort of forget the really fraught, politicised nature of race in Australia. Mm. I have yeah. so many more questions about that, but maybe just first to jump to you, James. Could you, just to ground listeners, can you give us a bit of a description of your work in the show? Uh, so um, my work's just two video channels, so it's kind of not that super interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, so like with the first channel, it's just um, me, my mum and my auntie um, cutting and making these headdresses. Um, sort of replicating Norman Lindsay's The Magic Pudding. So, like, the um, embodying the characters um, from that children's book um, through, through these kind of, like, paper hats and puppets that we make. And in the second channel, it's us embodying and performing this story, but also critically kind of, like, taking sides and, like, um, looking at kind of, like, its deep... Um, profoundly kind of like racist and misogynistic kind of <laughs> outlook. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, amazing. And how, Andy, what about with the other works in the show? Like maybe just giving us a bit of a broad overview of some of them. Uh, ooh, so there's 10 artists and there's a lot of work. Um, a lot of sculptural work just because in a building like Pandora Homestead that has a lot of heritage listing, it's way easier to put stuff on the floor as opposed to hang them on the walls because they're really touchy about putting holes in the wall. Um, but yeah, oh, um, there's some Kadima Ali works that are incredible. I just think he's one of, yeah, one of Australia's best artists at the moment. Um, so some works that were recently shown at Gertrude uh, that sort of look at, um, I don't know, like there's an Australian flag with like... Um, coffins and dead Australian soldiers on it uh, and then um, some sort of uh, imagery of um, these sort of demons um, yeah there's a lot of stuff about family actually you're not the only person that was working with family James mm. which I think is really interesting 
Um, there's also, I think, like six other artists in the exhibition made new work. So, um, oh shit. so, um, yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot in it. Um, you just have to come and see. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but if, if I can pick up on that point about family, and, you know, cause the exhibition talks about always sort of, you know, looking at politics of belonging mm. on a national level, but also on a family, you know, and the way those things interact. James, do you want to maybe speak to that? Yeah, like I, I think for me, like the only way that you can really affect change is for yourself and also the people around you that you care for. And, of course, all these people around you, they all have their own perspectives and their own take on things. And, yeah, and uh, unlike it's kind of pointless, you know, trying to convince, you know, people outside of, you know, your regular realm to kind of um, change their mindset. But I think if you can change the mindset of the people around you, then, you know, that, that's much more focused. And also you get to learn and build up your relationships much more when you work with family. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> and can I ask about the title of the exhibition, These Monuments Don't Know Us? When when I first read it, I don't know, there's something that I found really compelling about it and really exciting. Can I ask where that sort of came from? Uh, I don't know. It was... Uh, so it was a really short turnaround between um, them approaching me and a funding application. So I had to come up with, like, a title really quickly. <laughs> and for some reason, that one just really... Yeah, it just came out. It's like, yeah, cool, we'll just run with that. And then I had, like, working title in brackets next to it for ages for, like, all of my funding applications. And then it came to, like, the print deadline for the program, and then that was kind of it. Um, but I guess what I was really thinking about at the time was um, this one image by a South African artist, um, Seth Mbila Machane, who there's a beautiful image of her uh, as the, like, dressed up in this costume... Uh, as the statue of Cecil Rhodes at one of the South African universities was being taken away, and it's like, as it was like being lifted up by the, uh, from this crane, she had like made this incredible costume and was just like standing there like a statue, and it was just like this incredible like historical moment that she'd yeah she'd captured, and it was so beautiful and it's really amazing work, um, and I guess I was really thinking about that, and I'd sort of seen her perform earlier that year. And so I was sort of, yeah, thinking about her work a lot. And then that sort of came from it. And then, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I guess I was thinking, obviously, like, monuments in a very, like, um, not in a um, very, uh, not in a literal sense. But I guess thinking about, like, these sorts of parts of Australian history and culture that get monumentalized and then, like, speak on behalf of so many different people. I guess, and I, I think that's where a lot of the artists are coming from, sort of like yeah, different parts of Australian culture and Australian life that sort of stand over a lot of people. And yeah, yeah. And the role that art has always played and continues to play in that monumentalization, yeah. in terms of whose voices get uplifted, mm. whose bodies get glorified, who who is seen as being Australian. Yeah. You know, that's always been like art has always played a pivotal role in that. Mm. And so, I mean, I haven't unfortunately seen the exhibition yeah. yet, but I'm very excited to. And I feel like part of what it does is sort of like unpack a lot of those ideas around, yeah, like who, what. What, what are these dominant ideas around belonging mm. and how do they, how can we unpick them and unravel them? Yeah, I think one really interesting thing that came out of it that I didn't realise until the show was all up and I was talking to some other people about it is that, like, I don't know, the work actually looks really beautiful in there and it doesn't necessarily feel out of place, which I think is really, yeah, I feel like quite a few of the artists have really um, tackled some more complex ideas around, like, internalised racism and colonization and like what it is to sort of navigate um a place like australia where it's all that you know and it has these sorts of ideas about how you're meant to be if you're not white um yeah and what it means if that's like all you know yeah i feel like there was someone who i was talking to who came along and sort of expected the exhibition to just be uh, this thing where, like, there was just a disjuncture between the work and the, and the architecture because that's sort of how it seems to be described and how one would assume, like, a post-colonial or whatever sort of sort of um, exhibition would go. But it's actually, yeah, a lot of the works actually don't really look out of place there. And I think that's a real tension as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes me think about how, 
you know, these stereotypes around, mm. say, political art as mm. being angry, as being aggressive, as being, like, very obviously political art or something. You know, and James, before when you were talking about your works, is like, they're just videos. But, you know, there's, they do so much. And they are, of course, political work. What do you, how do you feel about those labels of, like, work being political or being post-colonial and what that does to your work particularly? Yeah, like, I, I, as you said, like, um, identity is so hot right now. So I totally embrace it for my funding applications. I don't give a fuck. Like, um, if I'm getting money for it and if I'm getting support for it, great. But then at the end of the day, um, just like anyone else, um, I have the capacity just to serve myself and my community and my family and my friends. And, yeah, and so... It doesn't matter how you get and make these opportunities, but you've just got to make those opportunities for yourself. And those opportunities really need to count for yourself. And, yeah, and and so I'm like, I I don't have a problem with, you know, like embracing those terms or whatever. Um, And I think it's also good to kind of, in a way, play with those terms. Like um, people might think that it's kind of like political identity and, and they have a certain preconception of what it is but then at the end of the day when you are making it for yourself and for the, for your group of friends and people and um your your community i guess um there, there's something different there, there's something that kind of like disrupts that expectation of um what you can say like what what is expected for you to be saying so yes yeah, so, so i think it's actually important to have those terms to work against as much as to embrace or to work, oh, yeah, or to fuck up, I guess, yeah. Mm. And, Andy, how can um, listeners find out more about the show? And uh, So there is information on the Bundora Homestead website, which I believe is bundorahomestead.com.au, uh, or you can come out to the opening. It's a song, The 86 Tram in Bundora, uh, relatively easily accessible by public transport. Um, it's just past La Trobe Uni. Uh, and yeah, there's an opening this Saturday between two and four, and it is on until the fifth of May. Yeah, so it's on for a couple of months. <laughs> Amazing! Do get down there and check it out. I definitely will. Thank you so much, Andy and James, for joining us in the studio this morning. It's a yeah. pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this. You know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah. Because of where we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this day, I was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene. So it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Just before, we were chatting with Andy Butler and James Newen about the exhibition These Monuments Don't Know Us. And up next, we're talking with Manal Yunus, who is a performance poet, an amazing performance poet living on Ghana country. And she's joining us this morning to discuss her upcoming performance at Brunswick Music Festival and her contribution to the new edited collection, Growing Up African in Australia. Good morning, Manal. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. To start off with, a very broad question, but I was wondering, can you can we talk a bit about the centrality of language and stories in your work? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, what do you want to start with? 
Well, I guess, so before we listened, earlier this morning, we listened to um, a TEDx talk that you did a few years back. And at one mm-hmm. point in it, um, you say representation is one of your favourite words. Mm-hmm. Could we, is, I mean, is, is, represent, is representation still one of your favourite words? And how does, uh, yeah, I guess storytelling um, fit in with that, if that makes sense? Mm. Uh, well, I guess uh, to answer your first question, I probably couldn't say it's one of my favourite words now. At the time, it was something really new that I was learning about that seemed so significant. I still think it's just as significant. It, you know, our whole lives are based on representation. It's how we form our own identities, how we see the world around us. Um, but now I think that I've I've normalised it so much in in my life. You know, I I don't have to say it as often. I don't have to. Uh, speak about it as loudly because I've made sure that I can see appropriate representation throughout my life. Um, for your second question, wait, what was your second question? <laughs> maybe, maybe to rephrase it, um, yeah. you know, because you you make work that can be seen as poetry, performance, um, you know, public speaking, and I guess throughout all these different um, forms and media. T- storytelling seems to be such a like, driving force behind all of mm-hmm. that. Um, what, what for you is this, the, the power of storytelling, I guess, across mm-hmm. all these different media? Yeah, I think that we underestimate how influential stories have been in creating and building society. Um, they're literally, well, they're representations of what we see and who we are, right? So the way that we tell our stories impacts our perception. It shows what we're seeing and what we're feeling, what we hope to see, and it also uh, impacts how people understand us and how we understand the world around us. So I think that uh, when we centralise storytelling in our formation of identity, we take a lot of power um, we take back a lot of power because we realise that we can influence who we are, how we're seen, what we do, what we become through stories. Absolutely. And alongside that, you know, alongside travelling around the country, performing and doing amazing public speaking and performances and everything, you also facilitate um, really incredible workshops and you've talked previously about your work as decolonial community engagement can I ask what you mean by that and how creative practice is a form of community building for you? I think that anything that can bring people together uh, is a form of community building. I think that bringing people together in a space where you centralise them uh, is the best form of community building. And finally, I think that... Um, when you're focusing on, say, people of colour or people who don't necessarily fit the uh, mainstream identity of, of Australia, when you centralise them, that is a form of decolonisation and allow them to build their stories independently of what is expected of them, of being a minority in a space. Uh, this is all a part of what I believe to be, uh, just a small part of what I believe to be decolonial storytelling I guess yeah and you have um, you've got a piece in the book that's coming out really soon on the 2nd of April Growing Up African Mm -hmm. in Australia edited by Mm -hmm. Maxine Beniba Clark uh, which is just so exciting Um, can you tell us a bit about um, your contribution to this collection Mm -hmm. so in the collection um, alongside some incredible works by um, other Australian Af- artists of African identity, um, there is my poem, Ashinese, which uh, it was such a pleasure to, to submit that and to put that in there and for it to be um, considered worthy of being in there because it, there's a lot of really personal stuff uh, in that poem. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That's my contribution. I'm really excited that it's in there. Mm. And... We, I'm not actually sure if there's a relation between these, but a couple of months ago we spoke with Anita Heiss, who edited the collection Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to ask about, I guess, the importance of grounding, you know, foregrounding 
um, your work as being always on you know, sovereign Aboriginal land and how, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, you relate to that in terms of your work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most significant things uh, for me. Like in my book, Reap, which I published uh, in 2015, uh, the first page is pretty much an acknowledgement of where the book was published and, and so on. And I think that's significant in any conversation that we have in a public place to recognize that any stories or uh, anything that we're saying here is only building onto stories that have been told for thousands of years. And if we don't have that acknowledgement uh, as people who want to empower uh, ourselves and people of color in general in this country, who people who recognize decolonization, um, it would be in vain if we weren't centralizing Aboriginal people within that. Absolutely. And... On that note, I guess, so what, could you tell us a bit about the event that you have, um, coming up on, I believe it's Saturday in the Brunswick Music Festival? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an event by Bedroom Suck Records and it's a, a modification of Music in Exile. So there's a, a band called Music in Exile and they're kind of the, the opening act of this event and the event is called Music at Home. And there'll be uh, those musicians playing. Then there'll be Music Yared, which is uh, a duo that plays Eritrean and Ethiopian traditional instruments. And then there'll be myself, and I'll be doing some poetry uh, that kind of ties into the same theme. Incredible, and I hope everyone can get down there on Saturday. But um, before we wrap up, I want, just before we were chatting with um, uh curator Andy Butler about the show that he's put on called These Monuments Don't Know Us at Bundura Homestead and we were talking about um, whiteness in the art world and the importance of creating spaces that are either you know disrupting that or challenging the sort of colonial white nature of these spaces but also creating safe spaces outside of that um, and not always having to speak back to um, that dominant narrative within the art world. Is that something that resonates with you in your work? Absolutely. Uh, that's actually the centre of so much of my work and that's what I'm hoping to do my further studies on because I don't think there's enough literature on that and it's still seen as a threat when people create spaces where they can grow and where they can cultivate uh, some kind of growth, I guess. And I think that uh, the more that we speak about that, the more we normalise that, the more we allow people to, to push the boundaries aside for them because living as a minority in this country is is confining it confines you to a particular place a particular identity you don't have the same freedom uh as as you might if you're part of the majority if you're a white person in australia and so the more that that we can appreciate how necessary that is for growth and that perhaps that is a better answer than integration at times uh then I think that the better off we can be, the more freedom that we can have to actually express. Um, hi, Manal. It's uh, Shahra said here. Um, I just have a question about, um, I suppose, just coming off your last point, especially about mm-hmm. um, integration. Um, I was listening to um, this person speak, the uh, um, like a last oh, when was it? Last year. And he was saying, so he's a member of the Black Panther Party, and he was just saying, oh, look, I'm sick of talking, like um, editing my talk to, like, appease a white audience. Um, how, like, I suppose my question is, like, you know, how, and I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, and how, like, you know, I edit my speech or whatever to to appease or to explain things to white people. I suppose, like, how how do you... Does that come through in your work sometimes? Are you like, oh, like I need to explain it this way because my audience is going to be white or whatever? Is that like, is that a thing that you think about? Yeah, absolutely. And you can't not. I mean, simply by the principle of whether it's being a speaker or being a performer, you, you're supposed to cater to your audience, right? So if your audience is majority white, the, the smart thing to do is focus on that majority audience because otherwise you lose them. Um, so it's completely natural. It's something that I'm trying to alter now and to recognize that I can, even if it's just that there's one person of color in that room, I can make sure that my talk doesn't completely... Because if you think about what we do when we centralize white people in that, is that all the people in the color, all the people of color in the room there are essentially being ignored. Uh, and 
that is exactly the problem, is that all media, all everything in this country kind of caters to the majority. Whereas if we try to change our vision a tiny little bit and refocus so that we can centralise the people in the room that are, in my case, like me, you know, um, that is... That's such a powerful thing. It's already such a powerful statement without even being a statement. It's normal. I mean, the reason they got like this is because that's what white people did, right? They centralized themselves. If we just did the same, we could really have a big impact. And white people can also learn then to actually think about listening to other people's stories when they're not catered and altered, the, the rawest form of those stories. Yeah, it would do a lot better for our growth as a society. Yeah, totally, and not having to like, um, uh, well, yeah, I don't even know how to put it into words, but like, you know, to be able to speak to each other, you know, without having it go through a white lens or whatever, you know. Like. Mm-hmm. That was just my <laughs> random question. <Yeah. laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, we both wish we could keep talking but unfortunately we need to wrap up so Manal can you tell us how can we find out more about your work and your upcoming performances yeah well you can hit me up on any social media it's just Manal Yunus uh, on everything Facebook Instagram um, I, my email address my website are words manalyunis.com and manalyunispoetry.com so yeah I've got all my details on on all of these you can also check out my book and you can have a chat anytime these are kind of the areas that I I'm most interested in. Great. Thank you. We'd love to have you back on. Yeah, I'd like that too. Thank you. Have a lovely day, ladies. You too. Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent, including Jazz Party, The Next, Ace Swayze and the Ghosts, the Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet, and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. So we were just speaking with Manal Yunus, um, but next up we have Emma Dodge, um, who's going to be speaking a bit about the lack of coverage in the mainstream media over the, over 70 hours of action protesting the Adani coal mine. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Um, I suppose, do you want to sort of give us a bit, what, what happened with the Adani coal mine? Yeah, so um, of, of late, uh, Adani is, still announcing that they are planning to go ahead with their coal mine. They're still waiting on um, some approvals, the Blackbird French management plan and their um, two different uh, uh, water management plans that they're waiting on approval from would have been uh, knocked back several times. Um, So uh, the other week there was an event on the 23rd of February that was shut down at Dani and it included a whole range of things, but uh, it was 75 hours uh, coal didn't reach a Dani-owned Abbott Point coal terminal for out of about 80 hours. Um, all coal exports were shut down. Uh, on another occasion, um, some people got inside the coal port and it was shut down for seven hours. Um, they missed the tide and it delayed them by 13 hours. So um, with a very small number of people, there was seven arrests. A huge amount of disruption happened to a Dani-owned infrastructure during that week. Um, and I suppose, I, why, why do you think this got no coverage? Yeah, so um, despite sending out like media releases and um, telling mainstream media uh, about all of this activity, um, we got virtually no coverage. And we've 
had some conversations since then about why this is, and although we can't know for sure, um, you know, we have a few theories. One is that uh, people, in, like the general public as well as like the people who are reporting um, the stories, and don't necessarily see the urgency of global warming. Um, most people acknowledge that it's a, a huge issue, but don't really understand that we really have 12 years to move away from fossil fuels and that that just isn't happening and that there are already people dying and um, and having to move from their like, sea levels rising um, due to climate change. Mm-hmm. And the uh, other one is that, and this goes one of... Um, both ways that they either don't see just how um, effective nonviolent direct action is, um, that like civil disobedience and putting your body on the line to directly stop industries. So we had tree sits and tripods and um, lock-ons to coal trains um, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know it's, it's hugely effective in that you know a, a very small group of people can really uh, cripple an industry, which. Um, people for a long time have been saying it needs to stop and uh, politicians just aren't listening and we're taking matters into our own hands. Um, and the other thing is that maybe the Murdoch media uh, does see it as a huge threat and it doesn't suit their narrative when um, you know a small grassroots group of people can so successfully disrupt and um, really aim to dismantle a system that they benefit from. Our current system is reliant on global supply chains, which are heavily dependent on fossil fuels. And big people like Murdoch in the media um, also benefit hugely from, and to disrupt these systems is to disrupt their profit and their power and really uh, global capitalism if we get to the point where we're affecting global supply chains. Um, And I think it's also really showing a threat because we're delegitimizing the political power um, that our politicians have, you know, and we're we're showing people that we don't need to just vote in an MP and sit around for three years and hope that they do the right thing by us because that's been proven wrong time and time again. And we're proving that we can just take matters into our own hands and create the future that we want and we need, really. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. And like you were saying, I think Mm. the fact that it you know, this phenomenal action hardly registered as a blip in mainstream media really says mm. a lot about the concentration of power, um, you know, yeah. not only within the fossil fuel industry but also in the media industry and in politics and how, you know, all these big dogs, so to speak, are mm. in each other's pockets. Um, mm. But I wanted to ask you a bit around um, the response from the local media. Mm. Yeah, Um the the local media that there was some limited articles and but really uh, the biggest story that came out of it was a, a total lie and it, and it reminds me of a quote that I read just the other day that said truth is revolutionary and that's why those in power routinely lie um, you know because the big, we we shut down um, you know coal exports for 75 hours and and on an, another day for for 13 hours and the biggest story that the local media brought out was lies about um, where people were saying that we were dumping sewage into a local river and that we were, in fact, environmental vandals, which um, is, is complete nonsense. But, you know, that was kind of the local story that got the most traction. And it really plays into, like, this pro-Adani narrative also that the local politicians are really pushing, which um, I think is grossly misrepresenting the community because the community is actually quite split in terms of people that do and don't want Adani and um, like a lot of people from uh, the cities and you know supposedly more progressive areas um, like to think and this is this is pushed by the media and those local politicians that you know everyone you know out there kind of in the bush they all are pro-mining and they all, all love Adani and it's really not true and the locals are quite who are very anti-Adani are really frustrated by this narrative that the media and their local representatives or so-called representatives are um, always, always pushing. 
Yeah, and maybe just um, really quickly one last question. You know, because where we're sitting here on, you know, Wurundjeri Country at 3CR, witnessing sort of mm-hmm. what's going on at Adani, it does seem like there's um, increasing momentum, you know, and that there mm-hmm. are so many people getting on board to voice their opposition to what is going on. Um, is that how mm-hmm. it feels um, for all of you as well who are involved in these actions, that there is growing concern and re- recognition that we actually need to do something about this? Yeah. Um, yes, it, it does. There is definitely growing concern. And, um, though there's another, uh, event actually called, uh, React, uh, Code Red on Climate, which will be kicking off, um, on the 19th of April and is a month long event, um, of, of people taking action. But, uh, it, do, it does feel like people are increasing the urgency of this as we see, um, global warming, you know, just increasing, um, and our, our politicians doing nothing about it. Um, but I think one thing that I would like to get across to people is that we don't have to sit around and, and wait for Adani to truly, like, break ground. We can actually um, uh, attack and make an impact right now. Wonderful. And just to finish up, how can people find out more? Yeah. Um, so, so I'm talking to a Melbourne audience and there is a Frontline Action on Coal group in Melbourne. Um, I think that would be the best place to get in touch with if you want to get involved. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Emma. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for having me. So we were just chatting with Emma Dodge, um, environmental activist who's been involved in anti-Adani work um, about the incredible 70 hours of action that happened up there a week before last. Before that, we were speaking with Manal Yunus, the incredible poet performing on Ghana Country. And early this morning, we spoke with Andy Butler and James Nguyen about the exhibition, These Monuments Don't Know Us. Check it out up under a homestead. It's opening this Saturday. Um, yeah, and before that, we were speaking with um, Debbie Brennan, who is part of PUSH, which is a collective of um, anti-fascist uh, organisations. Um, and just ahead of their uh, rally, uh, no to racism and no to the right um, uh, at the State Library at 2pm this Saturday as well. Thank you so much, Sherry, for a great show today. No, thank you. Um, and tune in tomorrow for Friday Breakfast and we'll be back next week.